Today on This Week Health. If you say, look, I have my thoughts, but I'd love to hear everyone else's thoughts. Let's discuss. And you choose that path collectively, then you're not coming across as indecisive. You're coming across as inclusive. And make it clear that others in the room know better than I do in many cases. And in almost every case, that leads to some really engaging and productive conversations. Welcome to This Week Health Community. This is Town Hall, a show hosted by leaders on the front lines with interviews of people making things happen in healthcare with technology. My name is Bill Russell, the creator of This Week Health, a set of channels designed to amplify great thinking to propel healthcare forward. We want to thank our show sponsors, Olive, Rubric, Trellix, Medigate, and F5 in partnership with Sirius Healthcare for investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Now, on to our show. All right, welcome back. Again, I'm Brett Olimer with Baptist Health, the Chief Medical Information Officer. And I am excited today to have with me David McSwain. David is the Chief Medical Information Officer for UNC Health in North Carolina. And he's also a practicing pediatric intensivist. So welcome to the program, David. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So I wanted to start. You recently joined UNC from another healthcare organization where you're also CMIO. That's where I'd like to start. What were your initial priorities as a CMIO from one organization to the next? Were those outlined for you? Did you come in kind of with a 90-day plan, like some kind of you know, standard business approach? Or I was just curious of what, uh, what your thoughts were starting a new job like that. Well, I really focused on developing my 90-day plan once I got to UNC because the great thing about coming into this role is that it's a really stable situation and they've been doing a lot of great work for a long time. So a lot of the work of getting adjusted actually happened before I accepted the job. It's understanding that it was the right fit and that there were some really good colleagues that I got to work with. And the previous CMIO actually retired after 20 plus years in the role on his own terms. He rode off into the sunset and he had done some really great work and they had a great foundation in place. So my goal was to come in and build on that. But in order to do that, I had to come in with an open mind, with a focus on being a teammate, with being a listener, being a collaborator. And so my goal has been to learn the system, to learn as much as I can and to get to know people, to make sure that people understand that I'm there to be a part of this wonderful team and not to come in and really disrupt or take over what they're doing. Now, that's not to say that I'm not planning to drive some changes, but I'm going to do it collaboratively and really understanding the lay of the land and the stakeholders that need to be engaged. So that's been my focus as I got started, and I've gotten to know so many amazing people in the process. That's awesome. Fantastic. So, but unlike when you started your role before, you're coming into a situation, let's call it post-pandemic. I don't know if we're ever going to call it that, but post-pandemic, where all of a sudden, maybe you had some hybrid colleagues that were virtual sometimes at on-site or maybe all virtual. Has that been any more of a challenge in starting this role in terms of, because you're right. I mean, it's all about relationships. Yeah. How, how have you dealt with that? Well, I actually had a pretty major advantage from that aspect because I've been running or engaged in a telehealth research network for many years, and it's a multi-center, a multi-site effort. And so we've been developing collaborations and developing relationships with folks virtually for a decade. And so it wasn't actually that big of a transition for me to shift over into a more completely virtual 
during the pandemic. And as we're shifting back a little bit, it's actually worked out quite well. And the key thing, though, with a system as large as UNC, UNC Health is 18 hospitals, over a thousand clinics stretched out across the entire state of North Carolina, which is pretty long east to west, stretches all the way. We have hospitals from the mountains to the coast. And so the virtual meetings allow everybody at each of those entities to be engaged. And some of my closest collaborators are actually in completely different parts of the state. And that's great. People argue that in-person meetings facilitate that meeting after the meeting where things actually get done. But I've never been much of a fan of the meeting after the meeting because I feel like that's used in a lot of cases to exclude people, to exclude important stakeholders, to maybe avoid some transparency. Not always, but you know, that's it can happen, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And I'm a big believer that if you're really trying to do the right thing for the right reasons, you do it transparently and openly and you engage as many people as you can. And so virtual meetings allow you to do that. You're able to develop a good working relationship and they have a lot of advantages, honestly, the ability to more easily take notes, to screen cap images that are of interest, to record or to, and know the names of the people in the meeting. You know, it's funny, I've developed such good relationships with people almost entirely virtually that sometimes the only way that I know that I am meeting someone in person for the first time is if I'm surprised by their height. Yeah. <laughs> You, know? funny you mentioned that. Yes, 100%. We had a, a system-wide meeting not too long ago where I had finally met in person some team members that I hadn't seen. And you're right. That honestly was one of the first things I noticed. Oh, he's taller than I thought. Oh, she's tall. Yeah. Uh, and I think it has to do now with how close do they sit to their camera? <laughs> yeah. What it came down to. Uh, she, you know, I think we come from similar systems where we're spread across a pretty wide geographic area. And I do think there's some advantages to that because a hybrid kind of some people in person, some people on a Zoom call was not new prior to the pandemic. So I do, I do mm -hmm. think that So you've yeah. changed states and teams and maybe the role itself is a little bit different at UNC than it was previously. When you got there, and I understand you did your residency there. So maybe there's, there's a little yeah. bit of caveat to it, but did you find yourself at a knowledge deficit, which is not a comfortable place for many physicians to be in, but not just what projects they're working on. I think you came from an Epic shop to an Epic or went to an Epic shop. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe there wasn't that, but just where was that knowledge deficit when you come into a new situation like that? How'd you handle it? Well, there was absolutely a knowledge deficit and that's actually great. Like, why would you go into a new job where you already know everything? I mean, I love learning and I love learning about what people are doing and I think that's really important. And coming into the organization, you know, it's important to be confident about what you know, but also don't be afraid or embarrassed of what you don't know. UNC is a large and complex organization. Nobody can know everything. Nobody can have every answer. So you want to surround yourself with the right people and respect their knowledge and their expertise and learn from them. And that's incredibly important. And what I've learned is that rather than being embarrassed about or hiding, trying to hide something that maybe you don't understand or you don't know, be open about it because that can actually lead to really great conversations and a better shared understanding amongst your teammates. A lot of times people, especially if they're not entirely sure of their own level of knowledge, sometimes they'll talk in code without even realizing it, whether it's jargon or acronyms. And sometimes they do that because 
They want to seem as knowledgeable as they can be, and they make an assumption that everybody else in the room knows what they're talking about already. And that can have the unintended consequences of making the other people in the room feel like they're supposed to know stuff that they don't know. And so I think it's important to be open about what you're not sure about, the uncertainties. People worry that they'll sound indecisive if they're open about uncertainties, but I think it's actually the opposite. You sound more indecisive if you don't share your thought process, right? Because if you say, oh, decisively, we're going to go, if you're not certain, but you say decisively, we're going to go with plan A, and then just a little bit of information comes in and makes you change your mind or makes you rethink it, and you say, nope, we're going to go with plan B, that comes across as waffling and indecisive. But if you say, look, both of these approaches have merit. I have my thoughts, but I'd love to hear everyone else's thoughts on the path to go here. There's some things that I'm not quite certain about. Let's discuss. I want everybody to have a voice. And you choose that path collectively, then you're not coming across as indecisive. You're coming across as inclusive. And so I make it a point to ask questions and discuss what I don't know or what I'm not clear on and make it clear that others in the room know better than I do in many cases. And in almost every case, that leads to some really engaging and productive conversations. Yeah. As you were speaking there, it made me think about when you have a medical student that's working with you and you may throw out an acronym or something and they say, well, what is that? And why is that important? Or, you know, they're just trying to learn. And boy, I found that's a real good check in it and on how much, how well do I know something? And if I can explain it to somebody, I mm -hmm. think then that just takes the, the collective up uh, another notch. And maybe as an analogy, if you're in a meeting and you don't know what someone's referring to, to stop and say, let me just make sure I'm clear what you're talking about. And if they have to explain it to you, then again, the, that level of understanding, I think for the whole group is confirmed. I really like what you had to say there. Yeah. And I think from a teaching standpoint, that's incredibly important. It's important to remember what it was like to not know about a certain topic and not speak as though everyone understands everything, all the nuances of everything that you're saying, just because you want it to sound decisive and intelligent. Um, well, if you, and so if you start from point A and point B, you forget in your training and all your years of experience how many different steps there are to get to there. Like you see mm -hmm. this, you're immediately here. But to be able to explain those things, I think is a skill that not everybody has, but should be yeah. practiced. And it helps people become engaged and feel like they can participate and they have something to say. If you're going through your thought process and you hit on something that someone in the room really has a depth of knowledge on, you want them to be comfortable speaking up, adding their thoughts, maybe adding some nuance or even suggesting a change in course or an adjustment to the plan. The only way to do that is to be open about what you know and what you don't know, and not to be worried about coming across as not the most knowledgeable person in the room. I wanted to take a moment and share our next webinar, Patient Room Next, Improving Care Efficiency. The patient room is evolving inside and outside of the four walls of your health system. What is coming next to improve clinical effectiveness through technology? with guests from health systems from around the country. We will discuss machine vision, ambient listening, AI, care companions, and much more. Before the webinar, check out the briefing campaigns being released on our channel now as we speak, conversations with leaders from Monument Health, Intermountain Healthcare, and, and they're just gonna build the excitement for this webinar conversation we're having on September 29th. You can find these episodes and register 
for the webinar at our website, thisweekhealth.com. Just look at the top right-hand corner. We have upcoming webinars right there in the top right. So love to have you join us. Please check it out. Now back to our show. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of along those lines, you and I offline have talked a bit about this, but the whole concept of an imposter syndrome. And I, mm -hmm. I was really, I don't know if alarmed is the right word, but surprised to find out how common that is among physicians. I guess it makes a lot of sense, a lot of perfectionistic tendencies. And when you don't have the answer to everything, you know, I'll tell you from a generalist perspective, as a family physician, I had to get comfortable really quickly of not knowing things and just telling the patient, listen, I'm not sure, but we're going to get the answer for you, whether it was a consultant or I'm just going to do some research or what have you. But I'm just curious, has that been part of your experience? Any thoughts there? Yeah, it is incredibly common. And I think it's important not to shy away from this because it is an important conversation to have. I think some people don't like the term imposter syndrome. I don't know exactly how I feel about it in, as a term, but I think it's completely normal and an appropriate thing as your career is progressing, certainly, and especially in health IT and in clinical informatics. Because if you think about it, We've been brought up for 20 years through medical training, through medical school, residency, fellowship, and then on through our career, surrounded by people who have a very similar knowledge base, right? Surrounded by people who are learning very similar things. Even if you're talking about different specialties, even if you're talking about different disciplines, you're still kind of learning about physiology, you're learning about chemistry and pharmaceuticals and all of those things, right? Then you get into health IT and suddenly you're confronted with people who are experts in cybersecurity and programming and AI and machine learning. And every meeting that you're in, you are sitting next to and surrounded by people whose knowledge base is completely different than your own. And you have this sense because you've come up through the ranks of a system where you are surrounded by people, where you're all smart and you all know kind of the same stuff. And suddenly you're in this area where you have no idea what some people are talking about sometimes. And that could be extremely intimidating if you don't recognize the value that indeed you're bringing value to that equation as well. And I think the other part of it is it's the Dunning-Kruger phenomenon. People talk about the Dunning-Kruger phenomenon on one end of the spectrum where it's people that know the least think they are the most knowledgeable. But on the other side of that is as you learn more and more, you also learn all the things that you don't know. And for someone that is very keen on learning and having a level of expertise, that can be difficult for people to deal with. The other thing I want to be sure to kind of call attention to is this is something that's it's more prominent, more common for women and minorities. And I want to address that head on in part because I am an old white man. And <laughs> I think I have so many incredibly talented women and minority colleagues. And it's kind of shocking to me sometimes when they tell me that they don't feel confident in their own abilities. And I actually had a conversation recently. I have a lot of mentorship conversations with people talking about their career path in informatics. And I was just sharing that their resume, their accomplishments were actually, they were better prepared to go into a leadership position in clinical informatics than I was when I was coming into that role. And that I definitely had a sense of imposter syndrome coming in. And she was a little shocked and she looked at me and said, you know, that you're the first male who's ever told me they had imposter syndrome. Oh, and I said, 
Well, I'm the first male who's ever admitted to you that they had imposter syndrome, but I get it. It's an ingrained thing. And I think that we need to address that head on and be supportive of our colleagues. And so I hope that by talking about it today, we're normalizing it and helping folks to understand that that's not something that should hold them back by any means and that it's a normal way to feel, especially in this space. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. You think about in our medical upbringing, our medical training, you never train to be wrong or have mistakes. We all do. Right. We all have plenty of them, but you don't go, well, when you have these, we're going to have a top 10 list of your top 10 mistakes from today. We're going to go through <laughs> them. We're going to assign teams to it, right? You don't, that's like, right, that's nuts. You would never do that. Yet in IT, you roll out an EHR, let's say, for instance, and you're planning on having hundreds of issues. Mm -hmm. That took like that took me weeks to even comprehend and get through, I guess. And so there is that clash. There's the world of you legitimately don't know. You're sitting in a meeting thinking, what value am I possibly bringing here? And then fortunately, you get a bone and they'd say, well, we're going to go left here. And you're like, whoa, if you go left here, you're going to kill the nurses. You need to go right. Like, we don't care. That's yeah. fine. And yeah. then you're, okay, at least calm me down a little bit. I brought some value here because I didn't understand half of what you guys were talking about. But I think that it's a setup if you're not in informatics from the very beginning. And so to your colleague that brought that up, I think the younger generation leadership in clinical informatics is going to be better prepared for that because it's not going to be this clash of training where you're the only person that can do this. It's the middle of the night versus it's a collaborative team approach from the very get-go. Yeah. Exactly. And I think the way that clinical informatics is evolving, I think in some ways it's going to help. And in some ways it's going to be even a little bit more challenging because Whereas a lot of CMIO, CMIO 1.0 role was more about implementing the EHR. And now it's more about integrating across a lot of different technologies. And that means you're expanding the scope of knowledge even more broadly, and you're bringing more experts to the table. And so you really have to understand exactly what you were saying. What am I bringing to the table here? It's valuable. These people that I'm so in awe of because they have this deep knowledge of cybersecurity. They're likely looking at me saying, you have a great knowledge base as well, and may even be a little intimidated to speak up because that tends to be the case with people who have certain titles or even just doctors in general. There's a certain level of intimidation factor that comes with that. And the way to overcome that is to be open and transparent Make sure you're inviting people to share their perspective and that you really demonstrate how valuable you find their expertise and that you genuinely need their help to function as part of a team. I really like that. One last question on this. What if someone's struggling with that a little bit, they recognize that there's what we want to call an imposter syndrome or just feeling inadequate in these meetings that you know, they're not the expert, which... I never want to be the expert in the room. I want to continue to learn. But what kind of advice would you give someone that's struggling with it? I think realize that you're there for a reason and don't be afraid to talk about it. A lot of times you have this internal dialogue going that can be counterproductive to making yourself feel more comfortable in what it is you're trying to accomplish. And think about how can I actually externally communicate this in a way that, you know, you don't want to say like, I have no idea what's going on here. But when you start thinking about how you're going to communicate your own uncertainties, you realize, well, start out with, here's what I understand, right? Start out with, here's what I'm bringing to the table. This is the way I'm approaching it. This is what I understand, but here's what I'm unclear about. And I'd love to get your thoughts on that. And in, in most 
situations, every situation, really, people are going to respond very positively positively to that. So I think it's just don't be afraid of that and recognize your own value as part of the team and as part of any initiative. Sounds like you in some of these mentorship relationships that that might be a I'll say a key, but a help as well, where you can get that, you know, you're not in a meeting. I can talk about this with you and you can say, are you kidding me? And someone can recognize that value or somebody may not see what their value in that meeting is at that time or at a particular point in their career. And like, you, you, no, 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 you're bringing tremendous value. Having that nonpartisan sort of input, I think can be helpful too. Yeah. I had someone do that for me not long ago and I recognized how valuable it is. And I was engaged in a grant application focused on artificial intelligence and it's really high level stuff. And I definitely was sitting there listening to folks talking about some of these, the way that this was being developed and the training of the models and all of these very complex topics and asking myself, why am I here? Why am I on this grant application? And the PI, I had a call with the PI and she just said, we're so glad you're on this application because you bring with you this clinical perspective and this understanding of electronic health records and how things are incorporated into clinical workflows and an understanding of both the patient and the clinician. And she just laid it out for me. And that was a powerful discussion for me. And I realized the value of that. So I went from feeling like I have no business being on this grant application to understanding my role better, to being a lot more excited about contributing. And I think that's the kind of thing that can be incredibly helpful, especially in a mentor-mentee kind of relationship. Yeah, I was going to say, and we as leaders need to remember that exactly what you experienced. That's fantastic. Well, let's, let's end there, David. I really appreciate your time. This has been fantastic. I think we could keep chatting for a while. I wish you the best of luck and um, thanks again. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, take care. Thanks. I really love the show. I love hearing from people on the front lines. I love hearing from these leaders and we want to thank our hosts who continue to support the community by developing this great content. We also want to thank our show sponsors, Olive, Rubric, Trellix, Medigate, and F5 in partnership with Sirius Healthcare for investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. If you want to support the show, let someone know about our shows. They all start with This Week Health, and you can find them wherever you listen to podcasts. There's Keynote, Town Hall, and Newsroom. Check them out today, and thanks for listening. That's all for now. Hey.